Hi, I'm Courtney Brown at Emory University. Welcome to my class in science fiction and politics. All right, so let's go over to page 22, which is uh, sort of in the middle of chapter 4. And let's read a little a bit about this interaction between Gal Dornick and Harry Selden. And try to see if we can figure out some, what they're talking about. This is Trantor, three centuries from now. Now remember, they're going over the mathematical ideas of psychohistory, where you we're looking at the mathematical side of things now. And this is really what social scientists do. We use statistics and, and other types of mathematical models to predict into the future, to predict who's going to win the next election, wh- how long a country will be able to survive before this coup d'etat, a revolution, or a change in government. And they have models especially just for things like that, like hazard models, they call them, or survival models. Okay, so finally, Heldon, uh, Selden stopped. This is Trantor, Trantor, three centuries from now. How do you interpret that? Eh? He put his head to one side and waited. Gal said, unbelievingly, total destruction. But that is impossible. Trantor has never been. Selden was filled with the intense excitement of a man whose body only had grown old. Come, come. You saw how the result was arrived at. Put it into words. Forget the symbolism for a moment. Gal said, well, as Trantor becomes more specialized, it becomes more vulnerable, less able to defend itself. Further, as it becomes more and more administrative, more and more the administrative center of the empire, it becomes a greater prize. As the imperial succession becomes more and more uncertain, and the feuds among the great families more rampant, social responsibility disappears. Now, there's a whole bunch in this section. Let's talk about what's here. But first, before we talk about it, let me mention a little bit about some of the mathematical models that you'll see in your future studies in political science that will be arising that they're talking about here. What they're talking about here is a type of model that's related to what social scientists call a hazard model or a event history model, sometimes called a survival model. And what it is, it's a special type of mathematical model that's used to predict how long something will last. It's based on a distribution, a probability distribution, called the Poisson distribution. And they very much like to use this distribution and the hazard model, the survival model, to predict unusual events, unlikely events, rare events. Let me give you an example that was shown in a, that was given in a classic book by a mathematician called Feller. Using the Poisson distribution, there were the Nazis during the World War II, and they were bombing London. And everybody always said, you know, this area of London, and they were doing it with their V1 bombs. Remember those buzz bombs? They would, they had little ram jets on, they had little short wings, and they used to send them over from France into into Britain. And the Londoners used to say, such and such of an area was safe. Other areas were were risky. There was beliefs all over the place with regard to those bombs, where the bottle, where the bombs would actually hit. And it became sort of a matter of legend. Certain areas were safe, certain areas were unsafe. And then a statistical study was done 
where they divided London into small quadrants, small sectors, and found out the probability of something happened. And they found out, using the Poisson distribution, that it was a totally random thing. That there were patterns, all right, but they were totally random patterns. The buzz bombs would just drop wherever they dropped. But people were making sense out of them. Very similarly, you have paint on a toothbrush, and you just use your thumb on the toothbrush and spritz the paint over a white piece of paper. Now, you know the paint was distributed randomly, but you show it to somebody, and they'll see a pattern. Oh, no, this is happening here, and that's happening there. But you know it was just randomly distributed. So people's minds process information and find patterns. Well, there's a whole bunch of mathematics, a whole mathematical set of theories oriented around trying to predict those random occurrences, those unusual, rare occurrence events. That's why they call it event history. Events are randomly distributed, but also they're, ra- they're, they're rare in history. Like the, a, a coup d'etat or survival. Why do they sometimes call it a survival analysis? Very often it's used to predict when a regime will collapse, how long it will be able to, a government will be able to stand before, it's, before it collapses. Well, and that's why they call it survival analysis. Also, they use it in medicine. They call it survival analysis. Why would they use it? Why would they call it survival analysis in medicine? I mean, they're trying to save people's lives. So. Yeah, they do a treatment for cancer or something like that. And then what's the survival of people Chances. after that? So the survival analysis. Well, we do the same thing in, for regimes. Okay, what we're predicting. So basically, some form of survival analysis which if you know these mathematical theories, you'd recognize right away. Harry Seldon was showing Galdornik. And you can show me, I do. that's what I do for a living, the mathematical stuff. So you can show me some mathematical output, and just about in a matter of seconds, I can just look it over and say, what's going on? So if you know how to do the mathematical stuff, which Galdornik does and Harry Seldon do, he was able to show it and say, what do you see? And so in analysis, you could sort of say, well, he was showing him some plots and some tables. And if you know intensely some of the, uh, you know, closely some of the, if, if you follow the mathematical stuff a lot, a mathematician could see the pattern immediately in the numbers and say, my gosh. And there would pro- and you can actually create a plot with a timeline on it, see the probabilities of, of survival declining over time. And you could have shown that to him, and, and Harry Zeldin could have shown it. And Galdornik would have said, oh my gosh, that's where the three centuries come from. It collapses. So this is, may sound like science fiction, but it's real. Now, when was survival analysis done? When was it invented? When was it actually made full blast? Before or after this book was written? Yeah, it, it didn't really become into... It. The, some of the probability elements were available before that, but it didn't really become a big thing or anything that anyone could use. This was originally printed in 1951, this book. And so it didn't really become something that was done regularly into, the, you know, the much, you know, decades later. So this truly was science fiction. But you see how it relates to the stuff that we do in the social sciences. This literally was something that someone could say, gosh, if you could, how could you do something like that? And Asimov actually raises the idea that a mathematical theory that could predict survival could be raised, and nobody thought that could be done back in 1951. 
a few decades later, that's exactly what we did. We found a mathematical theory that could predict survival, called survival analysis. And that's what he's talking about. And now, once you get the mathematics of saying, you know, the, you know, the thing is going to, something's going to survive with a probability of only so long, you then have to say, well, you, you then have to, with your own words, in your, in just the English language, you then have to explain to people, well, why should that occur? And this is important because that's what you do when you write scientific papers in the social sciences. You have to show the math in the first part of the, of the, of the paper. Second part of the paper, you have to explain it in words, what it all means. So this is exactly what Harry Zeldin and Galdornik are doing. First, they're looking at the math, seeing the result, and then Harry Seldon says, now explain it in words, what's actually going on. And then as Trancher becomes more specialized, it becomes more vulnerable, less able to defend itself. Further, as it becomes more and more the administrative center of the empire, it becomes a greater prize. As the imperial succession becomes more and more uncertain, and the feuds among the great families more rampant, social responsibility disappears. Now, we talked about something relating to variables last time. What kind of variables is he talking about in that paragraph? There are two types of variables. Remember we talked about them last time? The dependent. Yeah, the independent and the dependent variable. Now, what's the dependent variable, the thing you're trying to explain? What's the dependent variable in what he's talking about? What's that? Of yeah, the survival of Trantor. Or the, or the, 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 yeah. Okay, and now what are the independent variables that are explaining the collapse of Trantor? The models. What's that? The models. The yeah, what are the, what are the independent variables in the model? You see, if you had an if you had a model, the first thing you'd have, you'd have a dependent variable, and you'd have a list of independent variables. And so you can sort of say, how can Gal Dornick actually say those things? Well, he's ha he's got to be looking at a list of dependent of independent variables to be able to say those things. So what? Give me just say a few of the independent variables. The feud between the families. Feuds, okay. So feuds between the ruling families that would be one independent. As as there you know, are there more feuds? So that causes <coughs> the further decay of Trantor. Give me another one. What about when it says as Trantor becomes more specialized? Yeah. Now the specialization, as it becomes more narrow, so there's much much less able to support itself, yeah. much less able. So you might call that variable specialization or global specialization or world specialization or something. Whatever you want to call it, you call it the level, of, the amount of specialization for the entire planet so that it doesn't do anything else other than administer the galaxy. Thus, it doesn't do farming. It doesn't do manufacture. It doesn't do all the other things that would be necessary to support a culture. It becomes just administer. So, as it becomes more specialized. So, you might want to call that variable specialization. And you see, whenever you have a mathematical analysis, there's going to be a dependent variable and a list of independent variables. And Gal Dornick is simply looking at the list. That's how it actually comes about. Uh, anyway, does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So that's how that actually works. Let's go over to page 23.
Now, Gal Dornick was just mentioning to Harry Selden that none of this has been printed. The decay, the collapse of the of the empire. Uh, he's read all of his work that had been printed. Well, what's going on? And he said, but it's not. I've not seen any of this stuff in the, in the journals. And then Gal Dornick, and then Harry Selden says, but of course not. It, this is unprintable. Do you suppose the Imperium would expose its shakiness in this manner? That is a very simple demonstration in psychohistory. But some of our results have leaked out among the aristocracy. That's bad. Not necessarily. All is taken into account. Then Gal says, But is that why I'm being investigated? And Harry, Yes, everything about my project is being investigated. Well, are you in danger, sir? Then Harry Selden said, Oh, yes. There is a probability of point of 1.7% that I will be executed. Again, we're dealing with a hazard model. But of course, that will not stop the project. We have taken that into account as well. Well, never mind. You will meet me, I suppose, at the university tomorrow? I will, said Gal. Well, what happened that was a big story yesterday about Google that relates to this? Not gonna lie, I didn't see the news. Yeah. You didn't see the news? I, I didn't see the news. Those days I don't even look at the TV here. Okay. Well, what happened with Google yesterday? It was a big story yesterday. Especially in the. I, I watched the the, McNeil, the, the uh, Jim Lair News Hour. I, used to call, I still call it the McNeil Lair News Hour when Robin McNeil was on it. But uh, the News Hour with Jim Lair on public television. Um, it was a big story. Google. It, they found out was going along with censorship in China China has a regime that's not open to open debate information control is big because they don't want that. they're in a situation where their regime is opening up economically their government is becoming more specialized with regard to economic stuff and great weaknesses they're going to have to go through a democratic revolution great weaknesses are being unreal, un, un, uh, revealed in the in the ability of china to survive as a as a as a government a classic hazard model could be used an event history model could be used to predict how long the chinese government will survive you see democracy is in the cards for China. It's going to have to go through a democratic revolution. Because as the economy becomes more diverse, you're going to need a government that is more heterogeneous, a more modern form of government. Um, a government that can take more inputs and outputs. Because the business people, which are ultimately going to be the government people themselves as they move into business, they are going to require greater levels of flexibility less corruption, the rule of law, an improved judicial system, all that heterogeneous stuff, as compared with the hierarchical, top-down, homogeneous governmental structure, you're going to have to open it up and be broad because the people that are in power are going to need that type of structure in order to keep on making money. And so it's inevitable. It's absolutely inevitable. As the society modernizes economically, it's going to go through a democratic change. Unlike India, which already went through its democratic change, is now working on its economic thing. China is going through its economic thing, but it's holding off on the democratic thing. 
Well, one of the things that you see when it's in the cards that the government is going to collapse eventually is the control of information has become crucial because you don't want to show the weaknesses. Well, that's exactly what's going on here. There is weaknesses. You have a small group of people that are holding on to power, really a tightly controlled power, and they don't want anything to be shown to their public that exposes how weak they actually are. So with Google, Google has really prized itself on being an open search technology where information is freely distributed. But if you do a search on Tiananmen Square or Falun Gong, the uh, meditation society in, in China, if you do a search in the United States or anywhere else in the world for those things, you'll come up with a couple million hits for those things, Tiananmen Square, all describing the bad things the government did to you know, to um, attack the demonstrators. But if you do it in China, you come up with only 13,000 hits. And the hits that are at the top don't say anything bad about the Tiananmen Square. This is a tourist attraction, this is what you can see, you know. Do you get the idea? And so Google, in order to operate in China so that they wouldn't be censored completely, they agreed to filter information. So the Chinese government is controlling the access through Google that the people have. And it was a big story because it goes opposite of Google's uh, stated goal to keep the society open. I think personally it was a mistake. I think that they should have just been willing to forego expanding into the Chinese, you know, let the China block all of Google. It'll still get through otherwise. As long as Google is the, the search stuff is open, it'll seep through in various other ways. They sort of hurt the reputation by doing it. But nonetheless, um, I guess they felt it was a necessary thing to do, and it's better to get one foot in on the door. But they do establish a precedent that they're willing to allow governments to censor them. So anyway, that was the nature of the story yesterday. Well, that's what it was all about here the information was being controlled and that's exactly what was going on here the shakiness of the the galactic government wasn't being exposed to the public so they were getting rid of it they were getting rid of the gun they were getting rid of the information just as google as was part of that was going along with the process of filtering out that information well let's go over to page 28 and let's see what you can see about this let me just read a section on 28 and then let me be quiet and see how much you can find. Now, the idea of these se of these readings is you're supposed to actually be able to look at it and say, I can see this and interpret it politically. Just try it as best you can. Okay. All right, now this is a situation where Galdornik is talking, I believe, to his lawyer, Abakim, because he's been arrested. No doubt, no doubt. It is merely that as a provincial, you do not understand life on Trantor, as it is. There are no hearings before the emperor. Galdornik had just requested a hearing from the emperor, demanding that his lawyer get him a hearing from the emperor. And Avakim said, no, you don't understand things. You're from the backwards. 
to whom else would one appeal from this commission? Is there other procedure? None. There is no recourse in a practical sense. Legalistically, you may appeal to the emperor, but you will not get a hearing. The emperor today is not the emperor of an Antum dynasty, you know. Trantor, I am afraid, is in the hands of the aristocratic families, members of which compose the Commission of Public Safety. This is a development which is well predicted by psychohistory. Gal said, indeed, in that case, if Dr. Selden can predict the future of Trantor 300 years into the future, then he said he can predict it 1,500 years into the future. Let it be 15,000. Why couldn't he yesterday have predicted the events of this morning and warned me? Okay. What is this stuff about the idea of having rights that are on paper? What's going on with this section? What do you see from this section? What's political about this section that relates even to our own politics of today? Go ahead. Well, it appears that um, Gal or whatever wants what he thinks are his normal rights and be able to talk to the higher-up person to kind of talk the situation out, which is apparently in, like, constitution or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. And his rights are being denied because it's so corrupt, the government, that they won't even, like, listen to him. And even if he were to talk to him, he wouldn't even get, like, a fair trial or anything like that. And I think that's kind of something, even today, I don't know, I mean, probably in our government as well, that sometimes that happens, that so much of our political system in general is corrupt. And even if, I mean, even if you look at the people that are really innocent that get convicted of crimes today, like, I just... Well, that's great. List some things in our government, in our country here. List some things in the United States that you tactically have a right for, and it's all in the propaganda of the United States of what we have, what we have the ability to have, but in reality, we don't really get. Even like freedom of speech, like yeah, they say we can have it, but sometimes they like punish us for saying stuff that is on our mind that's against what they want people to actually hear. Freedom of speech. You're supposed to be able to say anything you want. and to. But now what's going on now in the government that is under a huge attack right now in Congress with regard to freedom of speech? What's happened over the last few years since 9-1-1 that President Bush did? The war. Patriot well, like sort of related to the Patriot Act. You don't have privacy anymore. Because <clears throat> of what? Tapping of phone lines. They can, if you say the wrong thing, all the, they can get, they can tap into any phone line. And if you say anything that could remotely put, mark you as a terrorist or something like that, they can. Spying on citizens. Now you're not illegally allowed to spy on citizens mm-hmm. unless there's a warrant. But that same story has been an urban legend as long as I can remember. Yeah. That, that you know that there's somewhere this massive computer, and if you say the words, you know, like president and bomb and the same telephone conversation, that all of a sudden all your phones will get tapped. Like and like, there's been an urban legend forever, and somebody did a st- somebody did a study and like. The computing power necessary to do that would be like mind-boggling, considering the number of phone conversations that occur in and out of, like, either inside the U.S. or from the U.S. to outside or from outside to into the U.S. Now you're correct. <coughs> it is tremendous computing power. 
When was the computing power put online? What do you mean? It exists. When did it happen? The great supercomputer. Meaning it has been an urban legend forever, but you're correct. It's been impossible to do. Until recently. When did it happen? Neither with the creation of the supercomputer or the quantum computer. Say it again? With the modern innovations in supercomputers. Yes, it certainly happened with modern innovations in computers. What what devices were put in place? Satellites. What's that? Satellites. Satellites. Special satellites were put up. Defense based. They were they were. It's a special computing system just recently deployed a few years ago. Well, at the same time, there's a logistical problem of voice analysis, which has always been a problem with computers. But they don't have to pick up every word, and these systems are really good. And what they can sort through is billions of conversations. And what they do is they sort through and they literally pick up words. And then they do an analysis of which ones they want to go after. So you have a scanning process that scans an enormous numbers of phone calls, picking up literally word combinations in various languages. And it was recently just put online. The Pentagon had a big thing. They had a, there's a name for it. I forget what it is, but I'll, I'll try to find out what that is. It sounds like a, it's a spider type of a name, but it's a it's a special type of a name for the, for the computers and the satellites <coughs> that were put up. It, it, the idea was this idea of being able to comb through so many levels of communications. But now there are others that are not involved in this large web of computer analysis of, on phones. Other groups that have been spied upon illegally and totally without any connection to the rule to the war on terror. What are some of the groups that are that have been targeted? Illegally, without a warrant. People of um, Middle Eastern descent. True, made people of Middle Eastern descent, widely that's been done. What are some other groups though, some actual groups, some organizations that have clearly no connection at all to anything that you could imagine. Are we talking about like major interest groups? Yes. Major interest groups I'm talking about. Groups, not individuals. People of Middle Eastern descent, yes, but they're individuals. What groups, organized groups, have been targeted illegally with absolutely no connection to the war on terror? Now, and we're not talking about individuals. Like when you mentioned people of Middle Eastern descent, those are individuals. What groups? Okay, what groups would you think we should target? Hamas, perhaps? Some Islamic jihad or something like that? Al Qaeda itself? Some group that has its perp, you know, an, an, an overt statement, a public overt statement saying, we are going to go out and kill people. <laughs> Targeting that. But is that what it's been limited to? What Name some groups that they've been eavesdrop have they been spying on illegally gotta read the papers folks you get this stuff this science fiction is relevant to the papers so this is what I'm trying to do we'll, we'll get you to realize that you know the stuff that's in the newspapers is really relevant to this which ones are they can you think of some groups alright let's think about environmental groups to start with Greenpeace Greenpeace they targeted Greenpeace what does Greenpeace do Greenpeace has demonstration yeah, yeah. I think, are Greenpeace the militant ones? Some. A some. lot of Greenpeace is not. A lot of Greenpeace is not, but they do have some demonstrations that they do. Yeah. They go out sometimes and have boats and try to stop whaling and yeah. things like that. 
What is another environmental group that was targeted? Sierra Club. Sierra Club was targeted. Now, what does Sierra Club and 911 have? To, what does Sierra Club and Greenpeace have to do with 911? You see, what happens is, <coughs> on the level of the Constitution and on the level of laws passed by Congress and signed by the President, if there's going to be a wiretapping and an eavesdropping and a spying, there has to be good reason for it, and you have to get a judge, a warrant. You have to get a, 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 a you have to show it to a judge, and the judge has to say, "Yep, good reason." And now the law is that if you're really in a really push comes to shove, you got to get it fast. You can do the wiretapping, but within 72 hours, you've got to show it to a judge. Now, under the current administration, now that's the law. Under the current administration, it's all been pushed aside. No warrants, no nothing. They go after anybody they want. Now. If you go after anybody you want, who's doing that? Now, if George Bush says spy, who actually does the spying? The FBI. What's that? The FBI. Sometimes. Say the FBI. Or the <coughs> let's let's go through the let's go through some of the spying agencies in the country. Well, there's the FBI, the NSA, and the CIA, but the CIA isn't allowed to operate on American soil. And it has, but it's legally not allowed to. But there's been waivers to now allow it to do that because there's people walking, going abroad, that come back into the United States, and so that's the, that's or they're communicating people in this country are communicating with people abroad, and the argument has been, every time something hits the border, you can't contact the FBI. You've got to be able to follow the people and the conversations across the borders. So, the door has been opened. Well, what's another intelligence agency? You mentioned the NSA, National Security Administration. Also, you have the National Security Agency, but you also have the CIA, and you have the FBI. But what else? There's another one. The DIA. What's the DIA? Defense Intelligence. The Defense Intelligence Agency. <coughs> and what kind of oversight do they have? Now, the CIA is a little bit like the post office. Everybody's poking your head over their shoulder. Public employees, and you can walk down the halls of the CIA. So it's not really that, you know, locked down an intelligence group. But what about the DIA? Few guys didn't even bring up the DIA. Probably some of you never even heard about it. That's the, that's the Pentagon's wing of the intelligence agency. What restraints do they have? None. No oversight at all. Now, if you don't have any oversight, and in this case the warrants aren't required anymore, and eavesdropping can occur, who physically does it? Just think about it. Put it into practice. Do you have Cheney out there making these wise political decisions of who to espy? Let's spy on Greenpeace. Who physically does the spying? Some little independent, not independent citizen, but some like low-level employee of the DIA. Exactly. Now, if we're talking with the DIA, we're talking about people that are in intelligence. Do they have advanced degrees? Do they have... I thought you had to have some kind of... Well, to get a decent job with the NSA or the CIA, you have to have some kind of degree. A lot of these intelligence people are... are, are uh, non-commissioned officers. They don't have college degrees, meaning somebody physically has to do it. And even if they have a college degree, that doesn't mean anything that 
means they're, they're going to be making all wise decisions. Meaning that you have a situation where the agencies don't have any oversight. And when you think about it, you think about it, the president, the Congress, and the agency should be wise. But when it gets down to it, these are just people in buildings that are told to spy and they personally make decisions. They're the same people you see at gas pumps, driving down the street, in the grocery store. Do you get the idea? They're not like Socrates, thinking through all the ramifications, the political consequences. They're just doing stuff. But by that argument, I mean, like, the head of the CIA could be filling his car right next to you. I mean, they don't publish his picture. He doesn't have a guard. Is it the head of the CIA that's doing all of the espionage? No, but his qualifications uh, are no better than some of the people who are. But who actually does it? Yeah, that's that's a good point. But who actually does the espionage? You see, the point is, when you don't have a, when you don't have this oversight, real close oversight, you're going to get abuses of power. Don't you think that's kind of the beginning of like the fall of a civilization? What's that? Um, couldn't you argue that it's kind of the beginning of the fall of civilization? Like, how many different empires and civilizations have started falling, and one of the first things they did was uh, political control of... That, like is, that is what happens. People start grasping for power. When empires start to fall, people start cutting off pieces, cutting off sources of information. The empires that are, the mo- that are in their strongest have, open inf- have more open information. Because if they have more open information, then things are going well. They're not threatened. When the empires become threatened, or when the nations become threatened, then they close off the information. They gather information secretly. They violate rules. So you see what what Asimov is talking about now is a general characteristic of governance. That people have rights, but to rights on paper. But to actually have those rights is totally different than having the rights on paper. The former Soviet Union had a constitution that was one of the best on the planet in terms of guaranteeing rights. Rights of individuals, rights of speech, the press, all that type of stuff. Yet did it have, in reality, any of those rights? None. There were no rights of the individuals of the former Soviet Union. There was no right of free speech. There was no, in practice, there was no rights, but in paper there was. So that's what he's talking about. How the, and even in places like the United States, just to give you an example, we have that happening. We have the uh, practical rights being different from the theoretical rights. Let's talk about something that's really weird and really interesting. Go to page 33 which is in the middle of chapter 6. Now there's a couple things that I wanted to talk about in this. In this chapter. This chapter is a real rich chapter. Now here we have Harry Seldon being questioned by the commission. And Harry Seldon is being questioned by the commission and they say, you quibble, Dr. Seldon. Can the overall history of the human race be changed? And he he says, yes. Easily? And he says, no, with great difficulty. 
Why? they ask. The psychohistoric trend of a planet full of people maintains huge inertia. To be changed, it must be met with something possessing a similar inertia. Either as many people must be concerned, or, if the number of people be relatively small, enormous time for change must be allowed. Do you understand? Okay. What's he talking about here? This is really important scientific stuff. The psychohistoric trend of a planet full of people contains huge inertia. To be changed, it must be met with something possessing a similar inertia. Either as many people must be concerned, or, if the number of people be relatively small, enormous time for change must be allowed. Go ahead. He's talking about the foundation, and because even... Even with the, con- it's not gonna take thirty thousand years, but it's still gonna take two thousand years for them to rebuild. Rebuild. So the foundation itself is not that many people. Yeah. But I mean, two thousand years, they can probably create an empire. That's a great thing. That that's a good point. Hussein was just men- mentioning that, you know, if a small group of people is gonna change the evolution of the whole galaxy, they have to have a lot of time to do it. What about comparing this to steering a aircraft carrier or the Titanic a large boat takes them awfully to turn because there's so much like inertia pushing it in one direction it's got so much momentum that you have to give it a long time for it to turn its course yeah it's going to take a long time go ahead I think you can actually apply it to even like getting our independence from Britain like when we fought the revolution and we were just a small group of people and then now if you look at today how long that's taken us to develop into this huge like nation yeah how long did it take it took a long time let's take an example of uh, social change here in the United States look at some of the stuff that the current presidential administration the current president has been fighting so strongly social security the tax structure in fact he wants to go to a flat tax that's what he's been talking about but that Mm -hmm. seems undoable Uh, cutting back on Medicare and Medicaid big time they were going after stuff like that where did all that stuff have have its roots but the reason it's so hard for him to do is because like the sheer number of people who depend on Medicare and Medicaid for instance are such really? a great you know, momentous force towards keeping it that it's very hard to go against that the same holds true for um, social security so many people have spent their entire lives paying into it that the idea of removing it Good. is you know the idea of removing you know part of their living and as for the tax structure I mean the IRS employs... Uh, the IRS has its own zip code. You don't even have to... If you want to mail something to the IRS, just write IRS and then, like, wherever it is in Maryland, and then there's zip code. There's no street address because they have their own zip code. I mean, it employs that many people. So, I mean, right there, just the employees of the IRS have their own momentum to avoid change. And then the other thing is people would... Because half the nation pays 
more than the flat tax, or less than half the nation pays more than the flat tax rate, they would be in favor of dropping to the lower tax. But then again, you have the other half of the population who pays no tax. And so the idea of raising their taxes or like increasing their taxes to meet the rest of the nations is not very appealing to them. Now, you see what you've been arguing for is how is the reasons for why it's been so hard for George Bush to get these get these changes have to, to occur. Well, to get these policies to be removed would take the same amount of force as it took to get the policies enacted in the first place. What happened? Now, yeah, that's the question. What happened on the other side of it back in the 30s to get the policy started in the first place? If George Bush can't get them away, well, how did they get started in the first place? Now, listen. The psychohistoric trend of a planet, think of a nation as big as the United States, full of people contains a huge inertia. To be changed, it must be met with something possessing a similar inertia. Either as many people must be concerned, or if the number of people is relatively small, enormous time for change must be allowed. So we were now talking about the number of people being small because George Bush, is, George Bush and Cheney are two people. So according to Isaac Asimov, that will require a lot of time. On the other hand, the policies that started these, that when these policies were created, Social Security, FDIC, uh, Medicare, Medicaid, the whole, the whole stuff, the whole social net, they came in rather quickly. What happened? How did it happen? According to this, you needed to have a similar inertia, a huge inertia to get a whole country to change that fast. But the thing is, it's kind of like an unfair comparison because during the Depression, there were all these powers that the president had and that the government had Keep talking. that just allowed them to like push through things like that without... I mean, the people didn't know what Social Security was during the Depression. And they didn't know what Medicare and Medicaid were going to be, or what they were at the time. Uh, it was just like the president pushed them through and then was like, oh, by the way, here's what I just did for the American populace. Well, let's go back a little bit. Let's talk about this Depression a bit. That's part of the whole equation. There was that first 100 days during Roosevelt's first term in office in yeah. 1932 when he when he won the election. Go ahead, you talk about that, Hussein. Because he got, I think the first 100 days, almost anything he passed to Congress, it was enacted right away. There was even one bill that was passed before it was written, meaning Roosevelt was writing it and it was on his desk. It was written. It was being written on his desk and it passed Congress. <laughs> they just gave Congress a number. Bill, so it's bill, bill with a number on it. It passed and it was not written yet. It was in the middle of being written. No one had seen it. But yeah, that always happens when it's time of war or anything. President Abraham Lincoln had like the same amount of powers. I mean, FDR, because that's what I was talking I had another political science class, and they were like, the reason a president has powers like that in yeah. times of, is because it takes too long for Congress to meet, decide on a law, pass it. But the president, I mean, you need, in a situation like the Depression, you need to have results quickly. You can't take yeah. months to worry about a bill or something. So, I mean, FDR at that point, I mean, pretty much could have written anything he wanted. He could have said, let's bomb China. They probably would have done it. That's an interesting... Okay, that's it. So the Depression was that inertia. But but the other thing is, like, talking about how if you have a small group of people, it takes a long time. 
like the American populace during the Depression didn't know about this stuff, and these bills got passed to enact Social Security and Medicare, and then like slowly they changed people's lives to the point where you know this. It was like a small number of people who knew about Social Security when they enacted it, and then it started changing people's lives slowly, and now 70 years later, like, people can't give it up. Well, that's the whole point. You get things started in the first place. The bills get started. Actually, when they started Social Security, it was a little after that, and it was a, it was a, it was a, it was a process where they actually had to sell the whole thing to the public, which is to take money out of their account, out of their paychecks every, every month, and there was no Social Security. And it had to go through some years, like seven years, before Social Security would actually start, meaning they were taking the money out without having, without giving any. They had to build up a, a pool. And so that took some extra selling. Mm. Now imagine doing that now. Can you imagine that happening now? No, in fact... Let's tax you for seven years without giving you any benefits whatsoever. Do you get the idea? Let's talk about the inertia. So when you raised it, the idea of an inertia, of a force. There must have been one hell of a force in order to get people to agree to stuff like that. Well, and they've now proven that Social Security is uh, is not efficacious in the long run. I think it was in Galveston, Texas. The, the teachers there or something were offered the opportunity to opt out of Social Security, and their average retirement income is like... 35 or 40 percent based on the market. They were allowed to invest that money in the market. And their average income was like 35 or 40 percent greater than, you know, the average Americans who's retire- who is retiring on Social Security. And so it just, it seems like the, the force of people is so great, but they're not thinking. Like these people, they don't, they're thinking, they have this whole thing in place and they don't want to change. And so they're just moving along social, with Social Security, and it doesn't occur to them that if they think about it, if they stop Social Security, they might end up making more money in the long run and helping the U.S. economy by investing the money that was previously in Social Security into the okay, stock that, market. That gets into a long debate about whether there should be Social Security or not. Let's not, get, let's not go down that route, because then we'll go down into the route of the conservatives versus the liberals battling away on the, on the Jim Lehrer News Hour about whether it's right to have Social Security, whether it should be private accounts and the whole thing. And that's a whole, that's a whole mess, which is a valid and a very interesting debate. But um, it, it gets us away a little bit from the main thing that we were getting from the Asimov thing, which is a lot of inertia was needed. A lot of force was needed to get something started like that. And now let's look at what the Depression was. The Depression was a situation in which there was 25% unemployment. Now, that was official unemployment, meaning they hardly counted women back in those days, and they didn't count minorities. So you're talking about 25% white males unemployed. So really what you're talking about is a population that was fundamentally unemployed, more on the level of like 40%. But the official unemployment rate was 20%, 25%. You had a situation where one-third of the state of Alabama, for example, no, I take that back. It was one quarter of the state of Alabama was put on the auction block on one Saturday afternoon. One quarter of the entire state went belly up. People couldn't pay their mortgages on their farms. One quarter of an entire state on one day had to walk, had to literally walk away from their farms and just literally become migrants. You had people that were filmed 
in fisticuff fights, fighting over a couple cans of garbage in Chicago. I mean, you had really a desperate situation. And that level of consciousness of the desperateness of the situation was what was able to get all those bills passed. That, and that's what he's talking about, something possessing a similar inertia. Either as many people must be concerned, so that was a big deal. So, when we look at social history, we should look at when there is a big change, what happened to allow that big change? When people complain now about the Patriot Act, the one thing they notice about the Patriot Act is it happened right after 911. Meaning the Patriot Act normally could not have passed. It was a huge change in the way we govern ourselves. But after 911, everybody was willing to sort of say, just solve that problem. State of war. That type of thing. Let's go over in uh, page 36 and 37. And this is still in the same chapter. Chapter 6. When the commission is saying to, on page 36, the commission is saying to uh, Harry Seldon, then you're predicting ruin. And he says, it is a prediction which is made by mathematics. I pass no moral judgments. Personally, I regret the prospect. Even if the empire were admitted to be a bad thing, an admission I do not make, the state of anarchy which would follow its fall would be worse. It is that state of anarchy which my project is pledged to fight. The fall of the empire, gentlemen, is a massive thing. However, and not easily fought, it is dictated by a rising bureaucracy, a receding initiative, a freeze of caste, a damning of curiosity, a hundred other factors, other factors you should be thinking in terms of independent variables. It has been going on, as I have said, for centuries, and it is too majestic and massive a movement to stop. Okay. Now, with that answer in your mind, let's go over to page 37 and read something that we will call related to failed states. In the social sciences, there's a science, there's a whole area called the study of failed states, when states fall, when they collapse. Okay, now let's go here to page 37, where he says, where, um, where he says, Harry Seldon says, Psychohistory, which can predict the fall, can make statements concerning the succeeding dark ages. The empire, gentlemen, as, as has just been said, has stood 12,000 years, but the dark ages to come will endure not 12, but 30,000 years. A second empire will rise, but it, but between it and our civilization will be 1,000 generations of suffering humanity. We must fight that. Let's talk about some countries that were failed states. Now, what kind of chaos happened when the states fell? This is not whether you liked or didn't like the governments that were there. But what happened when the governments just collapsed? Let's pick some countries where that happened. Russia. 
Russia was a change in government. It was a government that changed, but another government picked up right afterwards pieces. What basically became, that's a little different than the examples I'm looking for. In the Russian situation, you really had an old government, which was the Soviet Union, becoming obsolete, and it collapsed because it became irrelevant. People just stopped <coughs> doing it. And then another government rose out of its place because they still wanted a governance, they just didn't want the old form of government. What about a failed state? A state that collapsed but left nothing left nothing in place and no resources. It's not that the people didn't want a certain form of government and wanted a different form of government and then got that form of government, which is what we're talking about in Russia. But the government itself just simply collapsed and there wasn't the preparations that were necessary for something new to happen. See, in Soviet Union, you still had a very highly educated workforce, very highly educated workforce. And you had all of the infrastructure of a developed nation that could carry on with the new form of government. What about situations where none of that happened? Let's talk about some states that failed, but then failed. <laughs> There was nothing able. Find give me some examples where nothing, nothing emerged after the failing of the state. And by the way, I should warn you that this is exactly what they're talking about in terms of worry with respect to Iraq. Should it become a failed state, what we're talking about is that we're talking about this exact phenomenon happening. So let's look at some countries where this has happened, and what. What were the types of things that we can identify as characteristic of those failed states? Think of some of the worst places on the planet Earth that you'd not want to be, that you wouldn't want to be right now, that had that had been worst for a long time. Bosnia, like the whole big war that was going in Bosnia for a while. Bosnia? Yeah, that like it was just a one person fighting another person when the government fell. There wasn't any real. Well, they had, they had a, they had a, they had a governmental turmoil, all right. They had a revolution and change like that, but that's different from a failed state. A failed state is not when you just have a revolution and another form of government takes over. A failed state is when the former state collapses and there is no other. In that case, you're talking about. Like the basically in Africa, like the some of the countries there, and the names. But when the colonial governments pulled out, they they didn't pick up any government after it. It just became a load of war lords and then nothing. Well, sometimes they did have governments, though. But but there are good examples of this in Africa, but not after colonialism, because almost always when colonialism ended, there was something else. After the that. What's that? No, you're right. I mean, after like the whenever colonials pulled out, there was left a government. But as in the Iraqi government set up by America, it's not always a strong government. It's just a government which they think might work. But now let's try to find a government. Since we don't know what's going to happen in Iraq right now, let's try to find a government that we can absolutely say when they collapsed, a period of 
despair occurred for a long time afterwards. You're going to mention something? I was just thinking of the Ottoman Empire, but then it got parceled out. Let's so. think of relatively recent last century and and continuing into this century countries. And think Africa is a good example. They have a number of examples like that. So let's let's help focus. Let's think in terms of Africa. What's a good find a government find a country right now that doesn't have a government in Africa? I don't know enough about Africa. Well, you're not alone. A lot of people in the United States don't know a lot about the uh, developing world. You know that in 1974, it might have been true after that as well, although I do know about it, it's up through 1974, that in every... Now, half of Africa was French-speaking. In every embassy throughout all of Africa, there wasn't a single employee that spoke the French language. Meaning they didn't really have a lot of knowledge about Africa. And there was one case where the president of Mauritius was a little island off of the east coast of Africa, was um, visiting President Nixon and he was given a file and it was of a I think it was a, I think it was Mauritania. Might have been Mali. Anyway, he was given another file of another country that started with M. And President Nixon went through. It was a one-hour meeting. He went through 35 to 40 minutes of the meeting, and it was a little weird because the guy kept talking about tropical stuff oceans and stuff like that but the file he had from the given to him by the State Department had all about camels and deserts <laughs> and he said after 35 minutes President Nixon said excuse me I I, I don't mean to drop but uh, can you just explain this a little bit a little more uh, the, uh, the information I have in front of me is, talks about a, a lot of deserts and stuff like that you keep talking about oceans and coconuts and stuff like that what's going on and he said well what file do you have Mr. President and he said well it's this one here and he showed it to me he said oh no that's that's a little island off of the coast you're, no, I, I live off of an, uh, I live on a little island off of the coast of Africa you're talking this is a country that's in the middle of Africa it's uh, dry and it's landlocked and essentially it's all desert that's not my country I have a different country it's, it's, uh, and he went through like 35-40 minutes before they, he figured out that he was talking about the wrong country the, the president of that country he was talking with so there's a lot of ignorance about things like that developing in developing areas in, in the United States and and it, it goes from, you know, from top down and so it's always actually good that's why I always in a lot of my classes I always recommend reading the New York Times on a daily basis just to become more and more familiar with all these other places well, what about Somalia? What kind of government does Somalia have? Is it a parliamentary form of government? Proportional representation? Is it uh, dictatorial? Is it, what is it? Anyone know anything about, could you, I think, could you get the door? Anyone know anything about Somalia? Well, this is something that's good to know about. Somalia has no government whatsoever. 
It's, it's got nothing. No government. There are no taxes. You'd love it. No taxes at all. No governmental infrastructure. No one rebuilding the roads. No educational system. Nothing. Everybody is on their own. No police force. No rule of law. And it's literally like the old Wild West that you hear about. You know, Wyatt Earp type Wild West out there. It's a failed state. Now, they had a dictatorial government run by a, a guy called Siad Bar a long time ago. And when Somalia collapsed as a government, the CIA under George Bush, not the current George Bush, but his father, the original George Bush, he is during the 90, between 1988 and 1992, gave a briefing to George Bush and said, we messed up. We should have been able to predict that failed state, the collapse of the Somali government. And we didn't. We missed it. Just like they missed the collapse of the former Soviet Union and the collapse of Iran, the Shah of Iran. They missed them. And, he said, and they said, but in this case, we missed the collapse of Somalia. And we now know why. We were not collecting the correct information. We should have been looking at the water tables. <laughs> you can predict the collapse of the Somali government by realizing that they were having a severe drought and it was going on long enough that eventually the water tables were so low. And when the water tables became so low, the government had no way to supply anybody with any services whatsoever. There was nothing to drink. And the government collapsed. And they said that was the single most important criteria. So the CIA then became one of the largest collectors of environmental data on the planet to be able to predict failing, failing states and other turmoil. When, when there are environmental problems, people move. And when they move, they cross boundaries, and there's disturbances, there's trouble. So failed states such as Somalia... And that happened way, way back. I mean, since the 1980s, they've been worried about Somalia, and it's still going on. There's, it's still a failed state. So, you see, after the government collapses, long periods of, dis of dismay occur. There's another country, Liberia, has been going through... Liberia just had, another, just had an election. We'll see how that works. But it went through a long history of just brutal dictatorial regimes one government after the next all collapsing everybody chopping everybody's hands off Sierra Leone the same thing there are so many amputees in Sierra Leone it's ridiculous you walk around the streets and everybody's got arms and legs missing they were just chopping every failed states and it goes on forever Cote d'Ivoire Ivory Coast they had a long stable government supported by French for the longest time but something happened it started to fall apart, and now they've got a situation of dismay, and it's going on for... It's still going on. Different parts of the country are under different rule by different groups. Failed states. When states collapse and there's nothing... There's no incentive for a new thing to take hold. Then they fight, and they just... It goes into dismay. Now, let me give you one story. That was a true story. Uganda... Uganda was a failed state, and it collapsed. And then it went through a period of dictatorship with Idi Amin. And uh, 
and a, actually a, a dictator that came after him as well. And there was hundreds of thousands of people that died during this, you know, many, many, many years of turmoil. And the current president, Museveni, of Uganda, he came in with basically a ragtag guerrilla army of kids, I'm talking real kids, 10, 12 years old, coming in and eventually kicking out uh, Milton Obote and you know, the remnants of all the others, and establishing a, a new government that's been in power till, since then. But for a long while, Uganda was a, a basket case. No, no effective government at all, except for it was just a collapsed state. But I was in Uganda oh, a while back, and I was talking to. This is actually during the. Let me, but let me see. I believe this was during the Clinton administration. I think it was during the Clinton administration, and it was during the time of Bosnia and. Uh, all the stuff with the Serbs attacking and all the genocide that was going on. And I was at a meal with, I believe the ambassador was there, U.S. ambassador and a variety of other people from the embassy at a, at a dinner table with a lot of editors from newspapers from Uganda. The, Uganda had a lively press at that particular time. Uh oh 9.48. I've got to make this story short. I'll make it very short. One of the editors was sitting across the table to me and said Dr. Brown um, you know you're having so much trouble in Bosnia and with the Serbs and everything like that why isn't anybody asking us what to do and I just I sort of looked at him like yeah, what are you an idiot are you serious you're from Uganda what are you going to tell us we've got the best minds in the state department working on on that thing and you're thinking this was going through my mind you're thinking about that that we should ask you of all people what to do and, he said, and he, there was a pause, and I didn't say any of that, but that's what I was thinking, and it was I was later so embarrassed that I thought that, because then he said, you know, in order to understand what's going to happen and what's going on in that area, you have to ask people who have experienced it. And I said, okay, tell me, what do you think we should do? And he said, well, when people fight like that, when you have a collapsed state and people start fighting, there's really nothing you can do other than sending in massive troops to stop the fighting. But there's nothing you can really do to intervene. And the fighting itself may not be stoppable because what people have to do is eventually get to a point of exhaustion where they simply don't want to fight anymore. Because if you send in massive troops and then pull the troops out, if the situation isn't supportable, supportable internally, they'll pick up the fighting again. So what you have to do is wait for the point of exhaustion and then when the people don't want to fight anymore then you send in the United Nations with its peacekeeping troops and everything else and you can pick up the pieces but as long as there's that energy to fight to kill people for the sake of advantage then there's nothing you can really do and he said and as the decades go on look over various conflicts that you'll see the United States will get involved in and so on you won't be able to resolve them until the point of exhaustion comes. And I said, I'm thinking of the point, I'm thinking of Iraq right now, and I'm wondering if that's true. Anyway, after he said it, it was so wise, I was so 
embarrassed that I had previous thoughts. I said, my gosh, the State Department should be here asking the editors from the papers in Uganda what to do. It was a very wise, very wise set of statements. Anyway, so when you have these failed states, the question is, do you have to wait then for that point of exhaustion 30,000 years into the future as far as the galactic empire is concerned? Or is there some way you can change it? It goes back to the old, the, the editor of that paper in, in Uganda. Can you change the inertia in some way? Anyway, we're going to go through a little, a bit more of this novel. There's a couple more things I really want to point out, including what is this last... It's built into three major sections. The last section having to do with trade. And I want to be able to talk, discuss the novel also from a wide-angle perspective. What's the first section doing? What's the third sec- second section doing? And then what's the third section doing? Before we get into the second, before we get into Foundation and Empire, we will get into Foundation and Empire for sure on Tuesday. And uh, uh, so keep reading the Empire book, the uh, the one by Stephen Howell, mm-hmm. and then bring in the second, the uh, Foundation and Empire also. All right. What about the third book? When do you want us to have that? One? Pardon me. The third book. The third book we'll be doing next Thursday. Okay. All right. Okay. Great. So you won't be handing anything in until the following Tuesday. Okay. Cool.